an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, unmarked graves at indigenous schools in Canada are traumatizing families in the U.S. too, as they brace for similar discoveries here. It's only finds like this where people finally start to pay attention to what we've always been saying. And then, from the archives, roses planted by Seattle's original iconic baseball broadcaster are still blooming decades later. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Every Friday morning, our resident historian Felix Spinell joins us for All Over the Map, which is a look at the stories behind local places. And this week, The Green Book. If you saw the movie, you know what it is. It was the Bible of black travel during the Jim, the Jim Crow era. And it wasn't just for the South. It was for the entire United States, including facilities right here in the Evergreen State. Here's Felix. And Warren, Dave, yeah, the title of that book comes from its publisher, postal worker who lived in Harlem named Victor Green. It was first published in 1936, and he issued it for about 30 years. Now, the full title, The Negro Motorist Green Book, it's meant for black drivers on road trips. It, it started out just in the Northeast, but it grew to become a state-by-state guide with restaurants, hotels, nightclubs. You know, and places called tourist homes. These are just private homes that welcome travelers that served black customers at a time when other businesses might turn away black people or worse. Now, do you remember those uh, comb-bound AAA triptychs from the pre-smartphone? Yes. Yeah, I love those. Those are fun to play with long after the trip was over. Now, this is what a testimonial says in the opening pages of the 1940 Green Book. We earnestly believe the Negro Motorist Green Book will mean as much, if not more, to us as the AAA book means to the white race. I mean, it really is a, you know, a... a a significant part of American culture, especially that travel culture that grows up in the 1930s, getting on the road and driving around. Now, the, the local group uh, here doing research about it is called the Black Heritage Society of Washington. Stephanie Johnson Tolliver's president. She's a good friend of the show. We've spoken to her many times over the years. Now, she told me that black-friendly establishments in Washington, they first appeared in the 1939 edition of the book with just one hotel listed on Jackson Street, and that was the main street of Seattle's black community from the 1920s to the 70s, really. Now, in the later editions, businesses are mostly clustered around Jackson and around Madison on Capitol Hill. Um, I've been obsessed for years with an old uh, house on the corner of Madison and 22nd, where uh, I figured out three or four years ago that a place called Annie Smith's Restaurant, a southern chicken restaurant, was located in the 1930s and 1940s. It's still there. You can see in old pictures and new pictures how it just, anyway, it's this amazing business. And it was listed in the Green Book, I learned, you know, a few years after I'd first found that it was an old restaurant. Now, the Black Heritage Society is doing all this research because an exhibit from the Smithsonian all about the Green Book is coming next March to the Washington State History Museum in Tacoma. Stephanie and the Black Heritage Society are partnering with the museum on some soon-to-be-determined local programs. And if you look at those pages, those Washington pages, you know, many of which are available as PDFs, and we've put a bunch at My Northwest, it calls to mind all kinds of questions. Like, you know, you wonder if the owners and the operators of those black-friendly businesses here knew they were listed. You know, did the Green Book actually generate, generate enough traffic out here in Washington? that the business owners would notice. And it's also unclear how much overt Jim Crow-style racism took place in Washington in those years. We're known here for being much more subtle, but still applying you know, segregation and racism and keeping certain people of color out of different establishments. That, that's sort of harder to answer that question. But you have to admire the publisher for seeing a niche and then creating a practical workaround for an ugly reality. You know, it wasn't about to change anytime soon in the 30s or the 40s or even in the 50s and the 60s, a real practical way for people on the road to connect with safe and friendly businesses. 
And now if you can't wait until March, Historic Seattle is presenting a virtual programming this coming Tuesday uh, with the author named Candace e. Taylor. She wrote a book last year called Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. She's also involved in creating that exhibit that's coming next year. And Stephanie Johnson Tolliver is one of the moderators. You have to register online to get a Zoom link, but it's all free. We have lots of information at My Northwest, and we have those pictures of the Washington pages from the book. And I would love it if especially listeners in Tacoma and Everett could look at some of those addresses, type them into Google Maps, see what's there now. I mean, it's, it's an incredible, interesting way to do digital geography to see what has changed over the years and where these businesses were clustered that were friendly to black motorists 80 years ago. It's, it's just a fascinating chapter of history that needs more exposure. Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Have a good weekend, Felix. You too, Dave. Thanks. Serving Greater Seattle. And this is Seattle's Morning News. In British Columbia, discoveries of unmarked graves at former so-called residential schools for indigenous children have shaken Canada and brought about new scrutiny to these decades-old reports of missing and abused children. There are parallels. On this side of the border, too, and our resident historian Felix Bennell is here with that part of the story. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Felix. Yeah, this is a complex story about generational trauma, and it requires sensitivity. In the time we have this morning, we can really just scratch the surface. Um, in late May, the Kamloops Indian Band in British Columbia announced they discovered the unmarked graves of 215 children on the grounds of the old Kamloops Indian Residential School. That was operated from 1890 to 1978. It's a horrific discovery. It's traumatized people and shaken Canadian culture and society to the core. It appears to be forcing a reckoning between indigenous people and everyone else. Um, Other unmarked graves have been discovered in Canada, including on Penelicate Island near the San Juans just a few days ago. Now, these residential schools in Canada were government-funded and often run by religious organizations, including the Catholic Church. Many people believe they were part of a systematic effort to wipe out indigenous culture, kill the Indian and save the man is the old saying. You know, separate kids from their families, their language, their spiritual practices. There are also places where physical and sexual abuse clearly happened and where countless indigenous kids just went missing. Now, it's being taken very seriously in Canada. The government there has set up a trauma hotline. The media coverage is intense. This, this past Canada Day, that's their national holiday, um, it was on July 1st, was somber this year. There were uh, indigenous demonstrations. The country seems to have lost its taste for celebrations. Um, it seems like there's a reckoning at hand in Canada. Now, a similar system of schools existed in the United States, including here in Washington. Um, Secretary of the Interior Deb Howland, who's the first indigenous person to hold that job, announced in late June the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative, which is described as a comprehensive review of the troubled legacy of federal boarding school policies. Now, my sense, and I'm not alone in this, is that we're headed for a similar reckoning on this side of the border. I reached out to Michael Finley. He's a former tribal chair, and he's historian for the Colville tribe. He said the stories of abused and missing kids and the true intent of Indian schools are common knowledge in tribal communities. It's a very traumatizing era in our history that isn't well known to the general public, but it should be. But it's only finds like this where people finally start to pay attention to what we've always been saying. And so our our voices have been muted by a lot of different um, efforts. But this is a very systematic, a very deliberate attempt to wipe us off the map. Like many indigenous people, Michael speaks from personal knowledge. His father attended the Pascal Sherman Indian School in Omak. He was sexually abused there by a priest. He witnessed violent abuse of other students. And one of his great aunts has shared stories of when her sister was sent to Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. And she talked about 
her older sister that one that got sent off to Carlisle when she was younger. And they didn't hear for weeks that she had died. And the, the only answer they got when they said that she died way over at Carlisle was that, oh, she took a shower, she put her head out the window to talk to somebody from her dorm room, and it was midwinter, and she caught pneumonia and died. And there was no more answer than that, And but she talked about the pain of that. Michael Finley says family histories like this are the rule, not the exception. There's many stories like this that are painful, and they, they run through our generations today through their historical uh, trauma that a lot of people don't want to recognize or talk about. But it's very real, and um, I guarantee you if it happened in any other scenario, it would be headlines everywhere. But for some reason, because it happened to Native people, nobody wants to give it the same level of credence that they would otherwise. And I hate to say it that way, but it's true. And we're the survivors of that historic trauma, but we're here to tell the story, and we're not going anywhere. I also spoke with Shelley Boyd. She's Michael Finley's cousin. She coordinates a legal effort related to traditional lands in Canada. Now, that Colville Reservation in north-central Washington is separated from other indigenous groups by the international border. But people like Michael Finley and Shelley Boyd, um, who live there, you know, they're geographically and culturally close to the people who attended that school in Kamloops. The message that I feel that we have had generationally was that either that didn't happen or you're exaggerating it or it, it you know, I, I think of it in terms of even our, uh, as, as tonight's people, our connection to Kamloops is, is that it's the territory right next to our territory in Canada. And I, I 100% believe that, that some of our people are part of those, those unmarked graves, right? And, and there is no finding out who they are. Yeah, I reached out to the Department of Interior to find out what's next for Secretary Hallin's initiative. You know, there's records to comb through at places like the National Archives at Sandpoint. There's families to talk to to gather personal stories, perhaps even archaeological field work like what's happening in Canada. Nobody really knows for sure. I also spoke with Craig Bill. He's executive director of Jay Inslee's Governor's Commission on Indian Affairs. He told me there's 13 or there were 13 federal Indian boarding schools in Washington. The biggest ones on the west side of the mountains were Tulalip near Marysville and Cushman near Tacoma. There are also a number of day schools. I'm not sure how many. There is no one place where all this information has been gathered yet. Um, I asked Michael Finley what people in the Puget Sound area, maybe hearing the story, who have, think they have no personal connection to indigenous people, what they can do. He said, number one, you know, please hear the stories. And then he said one more thing. Have them put themselves in our shoes. You're, you're, you're sitting there living the same life that your people have lived for thousands of years. And this new group of people comes in and like, we don't like how you guys are living. And we're going to take your kids. We're going to move them 100, 200, 300 miles away. And they can't speak your guys' language anymore. We're going to cut their hair, which is part of our culture. And they can't practice anything they've done before. We're going to make you do things the way we want you to do them. Imagine today if that happened in America where we had somebody come in and do that to their children and ask them if they'd still be okay with it. They won't be. And both Michael Finley and Craig Bill told me they're certain that unmarked graves will be discovered in Washington, too. You know, whether the numbers are the same magnitude as Canada is harder to say. There's definitely more to come on this story, and I'm going I'm to do a few more stories on this for sure in, in the near term. Um, you know, a, a detailed report's coming out tomorrow from the Kamloops Band uh, with more details about the 215 graves they've identified up there. 
Uh, for the Secretary of Interior, they, you know, it's unclear what's going on with that report. They don't think any steps have been taken here yet, but um, the idea is to have a final report by April of 2022. So there's much more to come. This is one of those things where you know, we're good at pointing out genocides in other parts of the yeah, world. That's right. But here at home, and I love America unconditionally. I'm glad every day I'm grateful my immigrant parents chose this country to come and settle. But there's stuff like this that we need to kind of daylight. Otherwise, we're going to be just mired in the same problems we've had for more than a century. There was that arrogance that our way of life is superior to yours, and by God, we're going to impose it on you. Yeah, and it's we're headed for a reckoning, and it's you know the sooner we get in, into the truthful part of it, the happier or the more more healing will happen. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, before Dave Niehaus, Seattle loved voice of the Rainiers, Leo Lassen. And Leo, well, he loved roses. Look at Grazzo, goes into his wind-up. Here comes that ball. Uh, it's a high fly back to the left field wall. Back, 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 back. And it's over! <laughs> so there, <laughs> there were home run calls before Dave Niehaus. Here's Felix Bennell. Visiting us from the uh, crypt deep beneath the Bonneville Broadcast Center with today's lesson in history. And that, of course, is... That's the voice of Leo Lassen, the great Leo Lassen, the original voice of baseball in Seattle. He was the broadcaster for the uh, Rainiers, actually originally the Seattle Indians, from the early 1930s to the late 1950s. Mostly from Six Stadium down in the Rainier Valley, where that Lowe's hardware store is now. He called his last game around 1960, and he died in 1975 at the age of 76. And... He's mostly forgotten by anyone under age 70, you yeah. know, including myself. Um, but there's no statue or no mural or anything. Like that. He, he does, he's not as well-known as Dave Niehaus, certainly. But there's a little bit of Leo left in Seattle's Wallingford neighborhood where baseball history is in bloom. No question there. Yeah, this whole yard was roses. He knew every variety. He, he it was his major hobby. He was good at it, too. He really was. And as he got older, that's probably why he hired me. It's because it was getting a little tough on him. You know, to get down and tend to him. I mean, every square foot in this yard was taken. But he kept me busy there. So let me get this straight. His his legacy is a rose garden? It's a yard full of roses in the house that he hasn't lived in for more than 40 years. It's kind of cool. Uh. It's like a little out of the way. It's on a kind of a busy street in Wallingford. And that's Dave Christensen talking, David Christensen. He's 61, but when he was a little kid, he got the cool, very cool job of tending Leo Lassen's roses for him. And he wasn't really old enough to understand who Leo was at the time, but his dad and his uncle really made it clear that Leo had been this incredible you know, voice of baseball in the city from the 30s to the 50s. And Christensen moved away as a young man in the early 70s, but he came back and he's been living in his childhood home since the year 2000. And when he moved back, he noticed that most of these roses were dead, but there were several in the front yard. And then the house changed hands, and when the new people moved in, a guy named Steve Pignotti, David went over there and told him the whole story, and Steve was from out of town and didn't know who Leo Lassen was, but he's a big baseball fan. And he's excited, but he also feels bad because, you know, he's, he's not much of a gardener and he hasn't done much to keep these roses alive. But somehow they're still, they're still blooming there along the street in Wallingford. And so I met with David Christensen in, in Steve Pignotti's living room the other day. This is Leo Lassen's old living room, of course. And I asked David, is there any clue, were there any clues back in the old days that this was a, a baseball house? And he said, yeah, you know, the back, the back den, there was a TV and some pictures on the wall where he would watch baseball games and stuff. But the only other clue was down in the basement. And down there he had a chest of drawers that contained about every rule book for Major League Baseball. And, boy, there he knew every he knew every rule. My father told me once that uh, there was times when officer officials would ask Leo on rulings, and he would seem to know them. So uh, it just, 
every book was stacked. Yeah. And of course, that's era before social media, and that's a long time ago, right? That last yeah. game that he called back in 1960. So it's. But I asked David Christian, you know, why was Leo Lassen so popular? I mean, was it was he such a big celebrity in, in Seattle 56 years ago, 50 or 60 years ago? Or was there something special about him? I don't know, a celebrity, but uh, he was popular for for baseball, and a lot of people knew him. I mean, that's we were just that's all we had. It's a minor league baseball at that time, and the Huskies. That was about it. So that was big stuff. It was more fun back then, huh? <laughs> That's hard to believe. That that was the uh, the only major... Well, I guess you had Husky Crew. Husky Crew was big back in the old days, I know. Yeah, I mean, Husky sports was huge, and people listened to NFL games from uh, California teams back in those days, but this was the really the only home team that people yeah. followed avidly, and Leo Lassen's voice was probably the best-known voice in this region for about more than 20 years. And so let's hear one more... Nice play. Over to first base. He's out. A sharp runner off for Kowski's left side. They could jump to his left. Came up with the ball. And a short bounce. A hard hit ball right in the web of the glove. Took a little run to his left towards second base and threw him out easily. And that's the second out. In position to pitch to look at first. Yeah. It's, it's an odd accent, too. I think he was from the Midwest, but he moved yeah. here as a very young child. He's got this very strange, which a lot of people talk that way back here. I think you had then. to because you, apparently they were talking through yeah. telephones all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he did those recreations where he the, the team would be on the road and he'd be getting telegraph reports describing the action. Oh, really? He'd have sound effects. Have to fill in. Yeah, yeah, nobody would know the difference. They so. did the teletype and the whole thing. Did yeah. you do sound effects? They, I remember I got a tour once and they had the whole sound effects box, which they used to use because they'd get the score, the, the running score on ticker tapes. Yeah, and and of course there was no line. It was too expensive to hire a broadcast line out there. So they'd actually have sounds of the the crack of the bat and the the snap of the glove and crowd cheering, and yeah. they just make the whole thing. Up. And my favorite part about that is when the telegraph would break down for some reason, he would have whoever was at bat just hit foul ball after foul ball after foul <laughs> ball until the information came back online. They could start actually recounting what the action was via teletype. And this was his home run call. The back, back, back. Yeah, this is a famous. Back, 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 and it's over. Isn't that great? It's so great that baseball's fun again in Seattle this year. It's been so long. Ah, it's great to have the Mariners doing well this year. Yeah, see this game yesterday. Oh, incredible! Sixteen runs to something. Yeah, yeah. Let's 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 not jinx it. Exactly. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at mynorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. This has been World's Fair Newswire, a last-minute report on progress of the Seattle World's Fair, prepared by World's Fair News in Seattle.